Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday, the 12th of August, 2022. We are on Triple I every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, we were joined by Oliver Cassidy and Chris Kamen, the filmmakers behind Franklin, which is a documentary showing at MIF at the moment. It talks about the fight to save the Franklin River, which occurred over multiple years, which led Bobby to talk about sticking to goals. And she can't last years, maybe just a week. <laughs> Dan Salmon introduced us to more fitness gadgets. And can you enjoy a non-alcoholic event? Linguist Kate Burridge chatted a bit about discourse markers as well. We took a look back at some feats of fence climbing and we speak to director Sue Thompson about her Margot Robbie narrated documentary, also at MIF, Undercover. Melbourne's own Triple R. When Tasmania's Hydroelectric Commission planned to build a dam on the Franklin River, the Wilderness Society mobilised to protect it, sparking a now infamous and ultimately victorious campaign of blockades, protests, lawsuits and political wrangling. A new feature documentary, Franklin, recounts this epic seven-year campaign to save the World Heritage-listed river and to tell us about its premiere at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. We're joined by filmmakers behind Franklin, Oliver Cassie and Chris Kamen. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, Take us back to your involvement and when you were first inspired by this story. Let's start with you, shall we, Oliver? Sure, yeah. Um, So I have a couple of friends that had gone down the Franklin a few times and absolutely loved the place and wanted to do this sort of like source to see video to show the world how beautiful it is. And they asked me as a filmmaker what my thoughts were on that idea. And I said, that sounds really great. Look, if you had a personal story in there as well, you'd probably get a bigger audience. I'd give you an example. I suppose if it was mine, it would probably be about me and dad. And I told them a little bit about that. And they just sort of, you know, blinked and were like, oh, make that. And I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> okay. So to drill down, your dad was heavily involved in this campaign. And it would have been, it's, we're coming up to a 10-year anniversary, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, he passed away 10 years ago. Um, he was a you know a bit of a lifelong activist. He'd been the convener for the Launceston Wilderness Society during the blockade days and uh, rafted the river to join the blockade and get arrested and got home just before I was born. So mm. made a phone call back to mum and the first question was, are you still pregnant? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I have this diary that he wrote during that trip, which was sort of the more detailed diary that he'd ever written really and he obviously felt like it was a really important story and that might have been one of the last ways people could have experienced the river was in forms like that and luckily the campaign was successful so people can still experience the yeah. river. And Chris what informs your labour of love? Well I grew up, I never knew anything about the Franklin when I grew up so I only discovered it um, when I was studying law at law school and the High Court case that ultimately decided the fate of the river still remains one of the Australia, one of the most significant legal cases in Australia's history. Um, And so that was my way in. I kind of started reading about this weird Franklin Dams case down in Tasmania. And it was just, you know, it was like, why do I not know about this? And I guess in uh, an environment besieged by, you know, imminent catastrophe growing up with climate change and everything going on in an environment, I thought this was a really powerful story of a time when activists really got involved. And activists were able to chalk up a win for the environment so I thought this would make it you know it's a it's a really inherently dramatic story the way that the whole kind of thing unfolded and I was really inspired to try and make a film about it and then 
randomly met Oliver one day at a filmmaking seminar and he got to chat and he's like, I'm making a film about the Franklin. I'm like, fancy that. I'd like to do one too. So <laughs> seven years later, here we are. Wow. Uh, and what did you make of the archival footage as you delved deep into it? Oh, uh, well, um, we, we were making the film during the pandemic, obviously. So... Um, uh, Casimir, our incredible director, uh, and I went down to Hobart. We had to do two weeks of hotel quarantine. So we had two weeks before we were to hit the river to start filming Oliver's story as he went down the river. And we had two weeks to go through all this archival material that we had gathered up. And it's just an incredible trove of stuff. There was, there was, it's almost like there's a whole generation of filmmakers that cut their teeth in the early 80s making Franklin films. I mean, my mentors, in fact, my current boss has made a film and we've and so we, we've able to cl like collect all these films up and and um, and and pick the eyes out of all the all the all the best bits of all these films to kind of tell the the overall story. Mm. So that was incredible to be able to dive into these archives that were collected from the Wilderness Society to all these filmmakers, as I said, uh, all the news as well. I mean, it was huge huge news during the early '80s as well. So um, able to you know delve into the ABC news archives and get you know look at all the reportage mm. that had happened and. Yeah, so that was a real special. And we also were able to uncover never, never before seen footage mm -hmm. as well. So, through our research, we identified um, so like the late Roger Scott Scholes actually, who was making the films for the Wilderness Society at the time. He had the foresight to collect all of his sixteen millimeter rushes as soon as the blockade ended, and he sent them all up to the National Film and Sound Archive. And um, we were able to get access to that and scan some of these negatives anew. So that was wow, pretty amazing to have canny. them scanned and restored in digital glory. Um, yeah, and then, you know, there was another whole bunch of film cans that were found in the back of a garage mm. from someone in Sydney who, you know, let us get access to that. So it was really special to be able to go back and unearth all that and, and put it into this film. Was mm. it huge to cut down? I mean, how long was the original film you made before you had to edit it? I imagine with all that archive footage, you have to well, kill your babies a little bit. I don't think we ever ended up with, like, the five-hour version or anything, but certainly it yeah. took us a good year to mm. um, pull all the threads together. And We, yeah. knew, we knew that we would have a lot. Um, like, we knew we could easily fill a 20-hour series of this. You mm. know, like, the Franklin story is so involved. There's so much to it. And so the, that was always a, a running joke because we could make the 20-hour Ken Burns masterpiece kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, we were, you know, had to squeeze it in and had to distill it down. So we hope we've done an okay job at, at you know, boiling it down. <laughs> it's also it interesting down. to see Bob Brown speak of the role of art. It must have been quite edifying to see the f filmmaking have an effect then. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's... It's, it's quite intrinsic to the story of the Franklin because it's so remote and almost impossible to access for majority of people that really the way that we can experience, that most people can experience it is through art, is through that famous Dombrovskis photo of Rock Island Bend or through the uh, the film that Bob and, and his crew made like in the early days to then, you know, pay money to get it mm. put on the commercial station mm. and and get the rest of Tasmania to realise what was at stake there. Like that's yeah. yeah. What did Bob say? Is that he, he Bob said we, we had to let the river speak for itself into the lounge rooms across Australia, and that's yeah mm. by making a film and getting getting that vision into people's homes that really helped get the the importance of this area across. Cause yeah. 
people hadn't seen it. I mean, still, it's really hard to get down there. I mean, it's it's great if you can get down to the Franklin. There's incredible rafting companies that take people down. Mm. Um, I would highly recommend it. But otherwise, yeah, um, I guess we're continuing on that tradition, I, I suppose, with 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 um, celebrating the Franklin through art, and hopefully more people can see it and discover it through what, that. What was it like travelling down the river? It seemed that you maybe were a bit mentally unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, you know, I had our lovely director Cass with his like voice in my ear, being like, "It's really wet, isn't it?" <laughs> it was it's pretty cold. I was feeling that. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling that." <laughs> um, yeah, look, it was a it was a trial for sure, and um, I was quite fresh off having sort of gender affirming surgery as well, so it was like quite a major operation that I'd had and was trying to get back to my best physical condition to take that on um and yeah so in the lead up to going on the trip I just felt like everything that had ever gone wrong with my body was going (laughs) wrong with my body and I'm like oh gosh like you know (laughs) trying to pull it together but um you know I think um yeah the journey that you see on the screen for me emotionally is very much the journey that I actually experienced like it was rough starting and you know pushing myself into that position and then you know coming through the other end and being like oh wow we just you know conquered this and isn't this place incredible Mm -hmm. yeah growing up how how dominant was this story in your childhood did you talk about it a lot or was it did you know as much about it as you as you thought I certainly know a lot more about it now (laughs) but it certainly was also quite omnipresent and I Mm. feel like um you know i always knew the Franklin to have been one and like it was that moment in history where it's like oh well that was always going to happen but having gone in and talked to a lot of the earlier campaigners like one of the big takeaways that I got from that is to realize how uncertain it was Mm. and that it was you know one and lost and one and lost and one and lost and then finally one and that kind of level of uncertainty is exactly the same as we're dealing with today with you know climate change and you know all the issues that we're all facing and it's like okay well all right we're actually all in the same boat which means we actually can win now too. Mm. Can you speak to the coalition of maybe First Nations campaigners and then business people and how that all intersected kind of well perfectly in retrospect it seems but I guess gather it wasn't (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't so at the time. Oh, I think, you know, whenever you get like a, a, you know, huge numbers of people were interested in, in preventing this dam from going ahead for a range of reasons and, you know, people's tactics and ideas about how to do that are definitely going to vary the more people you put in the room. Um, we've had some really great conversations with First Nations people on this and we've got... Um, the voices of uh, Uncle Jim Everett and Auntie Patsy Cameron in the film able to speak to their connection to that, uh, to country in general and and to those places in particular. Um, And Uncle Jim was, you know, good to kind of point out that, like, they weren't sort of part necessarily of the campaign to save the Franklin as we normally hear about it, but they were certainly they're on their own kind of campaign to you know make sure that that part of the world is protected and that their their heritage and their culture and their people are acknowledged and I think you know that was actually hugely successful for them and a story that hasn't been told enough I don't think. Mm. Did it ever get hairy along the way for either of you? Oh 
don't know. I think most films, it's like it's like making kids. It's a great idea. At the I beginning. mean, you're described as an energetic, outdoorsy producer. By all oh yeah, I, well, I love, oh, no. The actual shoot was amazing. Like personally, I love the shoot. I love going out in nature. So I love being able to do filmmaking in nature. That was the easy part. I mean, that was the fun part. Um, I think you know, there's a huge. Huge challenge in getting a film funded. I mean, it's, you know, Oliver and I met seven years ago and we weren't working on it the whole time. But yeah, it, it's a marathon. And um, and we had, you know, we were going off doing other stuff. But this film was always in the back of our minds demanding to be to be made. So, yeah, in late 2019, we kind of bit the bullet and said, right, let's go for it. And um, we, we did a crowdfunder to, to raise about 20% of the film's budget. And that was successful. And I think that really gave us some wind in our sails to just go for it and Put the, you know get the rest of the funding together thanks to our other funders and um, and you know I think once we had got it all funded I mean that's me speaking as the producer that's my main job is to get the money together right <laughs> so yeah that was the hardest part for me but yeah <laughs> Oliver <laughs> yeah well I think you know that was the crowdfunding was a huge moment because we had like 800 backers basically yeah. and you know just to have all these people say yeah I think this story is an important one to tell. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, was really, really special. Especially, you know, it was kind of echoes of the Franklin campaign because it's a gr- it was a grassroots movement. It was a people power yeah. thing. So to have the people tell us, yep, like kind of go for it, that yeah. was really special. And do you think the more things change, the more they stay the same? Or there was something particularly egregious about this event that retrospect shows how scandalous the idea was prima facie? <laughs> no, I, I think, I think um, what the story of the Franklin tells me is that when the the activists that got in there, like when you cast your minds back to before they won and when they were getting started, they were up against the most monolithic enemy, or not enemy, but they were up against the most monolithic battle. So uh, that's what that's the inspiration I draw from it is that no matter how you know you know all objective measures might indicate to you like don't do this is you're gonna waste your time it's gonna fail, but these people cared enough to to go and 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 fight for it and they won. Lo and behold, they won. So that's, that's I think, the message. And I think that's still today. Like, yeah. we've got such huge, scary environmental issues facing us. But if we, you know, we just put our heads down and, and get, get on with trying to fix it, mm. we might succeed. There was one activist just quickly that mentioned that, you know, when the bulldozer came and, say, knocked over a tree, instead of discar- being discouraged, it had an emboldening effect. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, yeah. sometimes when you... And getting arrested. Yeah. When you kind of cop a punch to the chin, like, mm. <laughs> sometimes you just got to put your feet back in, you know, and Mm. ground yourself and get moving on it. And, you know, you've got that choice of do you step back and have a cry or, you know, (laughs) do you step forward and probably still have a cry, but, like, you know, take some action. Mm. So, Uh, yeah. Tell us where we can see Franklin. We're premiering on Friday at MIF at the Forum. I think it's sold out, but we've got a few other screenings across MIF. Yep. Chris might have the dates and uh, yeah. So Friday night is I think sold out or selling fast. Uh, then we've got another screening during the day on Sunday, and then another one on Wednesday night next week, and then another one next Sunday. Um, so that's the Miff screenings, and then um, you know Miff were an incredible investor supporter, fund, helped us fund the film. So after Miff get their first dibs on the film, we get to do our own release. So that'll be mm. coming out into cinemas in September. Beautiful. Uh, well, head to miff.com.au for all the details about where you can catch Franklin. And we've been fortunate to speak with filmmakers behind Franklin of Oliver Cassidy and Chris Kamen. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 
A British woman has won, has ran 106 marathons in 106 days. Too she, much. Far too much. She has beaten a previous world record of 95 marathons run in 95 days. Um, not, not set by her? No, by someone else. So she's British uh, and the former um, runner for 95 marathons uh, was an American lady. Uh, my one of my mates that I used to live with, uh, she decided to set herself a challenge for a day, uh, for a month, and she said she was going to run three kilometres every day, just ease back into running, just do a short distance. I think three kilometres is a nice ease into anything. Um, so she asked if I wanted to join her, and I thought, you know what, why not? And we did the first one, and it actually wasn't too bad. I was like, three k's is actually good. It doesn't take up too much time, but you're still getting out there and you're doing something. Uh, so we did it together for a week, and then I was bored. Mm. Bored, lazy, I don't know. But I was just like, it's getting a bit monotonous. <laughs> I don't think I want to do this anymore. Um, and it really wasn't that much time. Like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. But I just, I don't know. I just, like I said, I found it a little bit boring. She was good. She's very good at that kind of stuff. If she, Running. Setting herself goals. Right. And she's like, if she says she's going to do it, she doesn't. My older brother the same. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to do this and I'll post about it and I'll let everyone oh, know. Accountability, that's what it is. Accountability, mm. yeah, definitely. So, yeah, or, when, Also bragging what also, you could see, how you could see it. Yeah, I think she was doing it for accountability and she, like, the first day she did it, she took a selfie of us two. She's like, yep, doing it with Bobby. Uh, and then I think a couple of weeks later someone's like, where's Bobby? <laughs> <laughs> she screamed ahead. Doing it by myself. Uh, so, yeah, so, so she went and did it. And, yeah, like I said, she's done different things, like uh, went off alcohol for a year to the point where you can buy non-alcoholic beers but some have 0.02%. Mm-hmm. And she's – I remember I, I bought some for her thinking it was not – devastated. Oh, that's – okay. It's a bit much, isn't it? It's a bit much. Yeah. But I, was I just think like, you oh. drive yourself insane. <laughs> But if she she's was... just doing it for the challenge, not because of any other, you know, health oh, reasons. No, no, no. Oh, well, I mean, she didn't have to do it, but she was doing it as a health kick kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but 0.02, I didn't think. But she was like, no, this is what I'm doing. Uh, and like you could give that to a baby. Like, sure, it'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, probably has more arsenic in it. Than... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the push-up challenge thingy, oh, I, d- yeah. I, I did that. For a week. I, I, when I was going back over this, I'm just I think my week is my... So what was your push-up challenge? What were you doing? Oh, whatever that push-up challenge was. You had to do a certain amount of push-ups every day for however many days. Um, I get oh, yeah, when I you're raising money for different charities, then absolutely can't give up or, or just donate some money. Yes. Yeah, but... But if it's just for self-improvement in the bin, you don't care. <laughs> is that it? I think so. <laughs> I think it's got to be for something. It's yeah, got to be a I group of us. Yeah. Like if, if I'm doing it by myself and then like I'll start doing it with some people um, but then if they drop off, it's like, okay, now we're going to do it ourselves and let's just check in with a text message. I'm like, no, um, I'm done. You're not here. I'm not getting up. Oh, interesting. Okay, you, so the health in... doesn't factor into your thinking at all. That's I think true. I did health a lot when I was younger and I'm done with yeah, health. Yeah, that's I did health. You did cram health. I did. I crammed a yep. lot of bloody health. you've done all the health you need to do. I believe I have. Yeah. You clocked it. That's possible. I mean, Mon, didn't you, you oh, no. were doing something with Gerald, like you were sharing each other's steps or something and like, oh, and there's like right. a live reporting of... Well, that was more when I filled in on breakfasts. she said, oh, you're wearing a Fitbit, join my... Join my midweek step challenge. I was like, oh, okay. Mm. And then it was like, who can get the most steps? And then I didn't – I mean, I was logged in and had, wore a Fitbit, but I wasn't trying to beat. And, of course, Geraldine was living in Venus Bay where all she would do is walk all day. Yes. Uh, and I didn't. Mm. And, anyway, that's my excuse. And 
But yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't into the competitive nature of it. I mean, in, in our house, there's some planking challenge situation. So mm-hmm. just you and Gabe. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And so I've dropped out, but Gabriel is too. Oh, wow. Is, what do you mean? Is... There's a video of him planking. That's a down with, with one dog, arm up and everything. Oh yeah, one God. arm up planking. I'm like, you're shaming me. Absolutely. Stop it. You. you stop it. <laughs> you stop planking. Too young for abs. You put that dumbbell down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. Gosh. My um my I remember living with family and my dad and my younger brother were going on this fad diet so they were eat, they were just drinking vegetable shake things horrible mm-hmm. absolutely disgusting and my mum loves to cook and loves everyone to eat so she was very offended when they just weren't eating she was like you got to eat and they're like can you stop making so much food like can you stop doing this in can front of us can you stop cooking us these nutritious meals I want to drink my weird powder right. Yeah, good. And then I I would be eating these meals and they would get annoyed at us for, you know, oh, we're trying to do something healthy. It's like, do it on your own time. Get out of my mm. face. I'm not stopping what I'm eating because of you. So yeah. I'm really not very good at the so challenges tempting, of helping so the, people. Yeah, right. So having the temptation in the same vicinity is disrespectful to their goals. I say they should then, get outside. Yeah, then I think. Why should Don't we change set a goal that you, that you can't commit to if you're in the presence of people who aren't doing that goal. Otherwise it's... It's folly. Mm, mm. You're not strong enough. I mean, yeah. if you really commit to the goal, you can do it anywhere, you anytime. You say to them and you point your finger at them and you, you make fun of those idiots point with their goals. I did one of my goals in secret. The, you know, yes. like I remember when I was running up and down my street or whatever as a teenager, I would always try and go undetected because I didn't want to invite all the commentary. Mm, mm, mm. Like, oh, look at Daniel. Go, da- you know, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> But also, people quitting smoking. I think there's there was for the some people I've known who've gone it throughout it. You just don't mention it. Yep. Yes. Well, I just let them do it. But then I think with something like smoking, or you know, giving something up, a lot of people want to tell you, so they go, "Please stop me." Or you know, if you sure. see me smoking or getting off at one, I need you to step in. And yeah. I hate being asked to do that. Oh, because like, then you're like, no, 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 like, um, remember. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Then you're that person. Yeah. yeah. Do you need that cigarette? <laughs> remember what we said. Remember your goal. You asked me to do this. Yes. Have this shake instead. You asked me to be the most annoying friend in your life. And here <laughs> I am. I remember when I was growing up, there was a, I don't know, mum must be involved in some weight watches, I think it was. Mm-hmm. I don't think they call it Weight Watches anymore. Don't they? No, it's WW, like KFC. Oh, of course, yeah. We don't want to tell you that it's fried. <laughs> no, yeah. So uh, anyway, she was in the local paper. I flicked up the local, was flicking through the local paper and there's mum uh, dropping a, a set of scales into the bin. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Broken. Why? Well, it must have been the new thing, like don't measure no, oh, don't, weigh, don't weigh yourself. Don't weigh yourself, but yeah. Yeah. Actually, which strikes me is they eliminated the two W's from the WW. <laughs> they eliminated the weight and the watching. <laughs> you don't have to know how much you're losing. Anyway, then I checked in. She did throw them away, but then I checked in a month later and they were back. Oh, really? Yeah. It was just for the photo op. Couldn't resist. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I guess. But the bag of oranges as well. Oh, that didn't... Um... Merv Hughes used to do oh, that. Did he? What's that? I used to weigh this much. He'd walk oh. round around with bags of oranges slung over his shoulders, and you'd look at him and go, "Oh, that's a lot of extra weight." Well yeah. done, Merv. And I don't want to say the uh, wrong celebrity, you know, whether it was a, I don't know, I'm not going to say Denise Drysdale, but it was. But if you were to say oh, someone, yeah, you would pluck that one out. Ding dong, maybe. <laughs> Ding dong <laughs> definitely <laughs> said I lost five bags of oranges. <laughs> that's a fact, and it happened. <laughs> 
Triple R. From Bite Into It Wednesdays on Triple R, it's time to talk tech with Gadget Guy, Dan Salmon. Morning, Dan. Good morning, team. How are we? We're excellent, I reckon. Excellent. Good I'm morning, Gadget Guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be my new thing in my email signature, Gadget Guy. Uh, but we are talking gadgets in part. We are, we are. Now, today is a big day because I've finally got something positive to talk to you guys about, right. um, as opposed to all the doom and gloom that I normally bring in. Um, that positive thing is that we're all going to live forever. Right. Oh, wonderful news. Absolutely. Second, Only if, if we cover ourselves in little gadgets that monitor everything oh, that our body okay. does. Mm. Um, now, uh, for this uh, segment, I need to give a shout-out to The Economist because they did a feature on what they called the quantified self a few months ago, and that's kind of informed a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, so, I don't know, and I really strongly recommend, if, you, if you're interested, go check it out. It's really fascinating, mm. the kind of stuff that's going on. I'll give you a bit of a sort of a sneak peek of it. Now, um, this quanti- the idea of the quantified self. So, this is a movement that um, Wired magazine sort of identified back in 2007. So, essentially, there was like a, a group of very interesting, geeky people who became really meticulous in collecting all the data about what their bodies were doing and using that as a basis from which to improve their lives and lengthen their lifespans and that kind of thing. So this happened for a few years and, you know, these people would come together and sort of share their findings and talk about what they were doing. And then the entrepreneurs noticed that this was happening, the tech entrepreneurs, the gadget entrepreneurs, and thought, hey, there's a way we can make money out of this by giving these people things that monitor their heart rates and all this kind of stuff, their step counts, um, and make some money out of it. Now, as a result of that, in 2009, we got the Fitbit, and then we all kind of know what the Fitbit is, the little watch that um, you know monitors all that kind of stuff. Um, and then by 2015, we had the Apple Watch, which did that and more, and about 500 other little wearable device, devices. And now there's, there's countless, and there's constantly new ones coming onto the market now. Um, you know, there are watches, patches, rings, you name it, collecting all sorts of things from your body temperature and the number of steps you've done to 3D heart rate, the oxygen saturation in your blood, um, glucose levels, all this kind of stuff. Now, which is, you know, great in certain aspects, and it's also kind of interesting in that as a result, we're kind of seeing a shift in, I suppose, the balance of responsibility for your health from things like, you know, doctors and medical professionals through to you monitoring yourself. And so mm. there's, no, I wouldn't say a shift in responsibility, but certainly people are taking a lot more of an active role in monitoring how they are uh, going on the inside in order to, and, that, and that's, you know, has its benefits and its drawbacks when it comes to the relationships with the medical industry. Now, before we keep going, do you, do you guys use any of this kind of stuff? Do you have... Oh. I've heard Mon talk about how long she slept. Yeah, I have a Fitbit. Uh, um, uh, yeah, and it shows your, your sleep and stuff. I, yeah, I just... I think I could tap into it a whole, whole lot more than I do. Yeah. But I do like it for exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's the main reason that people use it for is to, that kind of, you know, activity, um, I suppose, monitoring. And it, it does. there have been studies show, that show that if you use those devices, you do actually do more exercise. I think there was a Danish mm. study that said um, people do about 1,200 steps more day or more per day on average, uh, 49 minutes of vigorous exercise and 10 minutes less time sitting around than people who don't wear these devices. I so, absolutely believe that. There are yeah. definitely yeah. days where I look and I go, oh, I haven't got my steps or like got, not going to do a workout unless I'm going to log it kind of thing. Yeah, totally. It's, and, and, you know, you're gamifying for yourself and that's, you know, you're beating your personal best. Like that's how a lot of athletes actually monitor themselves mm. is actually beating their own records rather than trying to beat anyone else's. Um, so like I said, there's a whole lot of things that get monitored in addition to your step counts and your brand and those kinds of activities. Um, blood auction. So blood oxygen is a popular one because 
a saturation of blood oxygen has become an indicator of whether you've got severe COVID or not. If you've got less oxygen in your blood, mm. then you're breathing less. And, so and I can tell you that. Yeah, there are, there are some devices, not necessarily the one you've got, but there okay. are certain devices that do. You might have a look at I'll the have, manual. Have a look at the manual. I'll look at it later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, it's not, not, not just other stuff. So like there's, there's the Aura ring. So you wear that on your finger and it uses like LED and infrared light to monitor your heart rate, your movement, your sleep, and they're moving towards oxygen levels as well. There are insoles that you put in your shoes that monitor your step cadence and your balance, which can be an indicator of um, you know, Parkinson's disease or whether you're going to have a fall. Some of these devices can tell you that you're going to fall over about 25 steps before you do. What? Yeah. Oh, that's so freaky. Isn't that weird? How does it tell you? Stop. <laughs> stop. Yeah. <laughs> and then you trip up with yourself because it's telling you to stop. It's like, I told you, I told you you were going to fall over. <laughs> there's, yeah. I mean, there's companies like in the US that are offering devices that measure like lactic acid and hydration and blood sugar. Blood sugar is an interesting one because, you know, that's a big on diabetes and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, the Apple Watch has actually been, um, uh, what do you call it? It's been... Uh, certified in the US for actually measuring atrial fibrillations, fibrillations, so your heart rate and like irregular heartbeats, which can be a cause or a symptom of having a stroke or a heart attack. Um, and some, yeah, like I said, walk, the walking one is kind of crazy, mm. but it's not just about, I suppose, diagnosis of stuff. And it's not just negative stuff. So the Aura Ring, the one I was talking about with the LED lights, that can uh, use temperature readings to predict. Uh, ovulation for people who want to get pregnant or predict your period if it's sort of an irregular period, tell you when it's... I mean, I'm sure most of the time you can feel it coming on, I guess, but like... Wow. Um, and the the craziest one for that one is that it can actually... Can, uh, it can actually predict pregnancy or tell you pregnancy nine days before any of the home tests can. Oh, I don't understand that. Yeah. How? Oh, I, well, just, just Does it by, have a camera on it so we can tell what you can see? <laughs> when you charge it. Well, that's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good question. But no, like just, just through like um, skin temperature and, um, you know, the, 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 the saturation of your skin and your blood, the, the blood content, that kind of stuff, it can actually te- it can tell you, yeah, on How average. How much is one of those rings? Yeah, A lot I of know. money. Yeah. A lot right. of okay. money. Aura. I'm not going gonna, gonna to advertise it. <laughs> okay. You can, you can, you can go- Google it yourself if you want to find out about it. Um, um, outside of that, there's also there was a, a researchers in Israel who used blood glucose glucose monitors and artificial intelligence to determine people individuals' reaction to food. So um, and drugs as well. So like you, you know, doctors prescribe you know a certain diet or a certain um, medication based on the overarching uh, idea of how those things work. But it all of the food and diet that you take and the drugs that you take will interact with you individually, regardless of what they're supposed to do and so they can actually monitor how a drug impacts on you or how food impacts on you specifically so that it can monitor the dosage that you take or whether it is the right drug for you um and that that again can be things like you know if you've got diabetes or if you're at risk of diabetes there it can give you very specific diets based on what your personal um reaction is to you know a particular wholemeal cake or something like that so that you can monitor that kind of stuff Mm. Um, and it goes beyond physical, though. So there's AI treatments that um, can, like, use cameras to watch how you move, and then it will be like an AI physio that says, oh, you're walking a bit weird. Maybe you should try and do this to kind of feel a little bit better. Um, and breathing monitors that can train people who are prone to panic attacks to recognise when they're breathing. It suggests that they're about to have a panic attack and so they can control their breathing to bring, to sort of lessen the effect. Um is yeah. the medical industry threatened by this or do they see it as a benefit? Both. 
Um, I, th- I, I think there's, there's, there's two sides to it. So the, so the tech um, companies that are building this stuff, there's certainly the consumer wearables that are kind of uh, helping people monitor that stuff. But then there's also a growing market for actual medically uh, approved and medically regulated devices, things like you know little glucose monitors that you put on your body that feed into an app that, that the medical uh, profession is actually using as a tool. Um, the I mean certainly doctors whose uh, patients are in best interests are part of what they do are definitely uh, in favour of it. Health insurance companies are also in favour of it, mm-hmm. which um, is a good and a bad thing. So there are some US companies that are giving people, you know, Fitbits and devices to monitor their health and improve it. But it's also collecting a lot of data, which could uh, impact on the premiums that you pay for health insurance. Like they're diagnosing pre-existing conditions. Exactly that kind of stuff. So that's a, sneaky. Yeah, true. And I mean, some of the some of these uh, devices are collecting data that isn't necessarily considered to be. Uh, personal health data yet so it's not protected by the protections of um, you know legislation that certain data collection is uh, monitored because it's not considered to be that kind of personal data yet but that will change over time you know as we've discussed many times previously the law is about two years behind technology most of the time anyway all right what about you do you gamify your health oh look i I don't have any wearable stuff myself because i can't afford it generally but um (laughs) i've I've got i do my step count on my phone Mm. and like that that, like the phone stuff the apple stuff is actually pretty good for monitoring your activities in that way um i I do i wouldn't mind trying one of those i mean i'm not planning on getting pregnant anytime soon but um but you'll know when you do i will know when i do (laughs) i will know when i do uh and we'll catch you tomorrow night absolutely you will uh tomorrow seven o'clock beautiful dan salmon thank you thank you Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. I did my dead ball in 1997. It's a very long time ago. Uh, we did it at Malrose Receptions in Tullamarine. All class. I uh, went to school in, in Bacchus Marsh and... For years, so when you do your dead ball, you're in year 10. For years, uh, they the teachers had threatened to make our dead ball non-alcoholic because too many people were getting drunk. Uh, and threaten, threaten. Wait, and a, you're in year 10? Yeah, but there's family and friends that are there oh. as well. But unfortunately, it was a lot of the students that were getting drunk. Mm. But it was, it, it was just everyone and they weren't great events in the end uh, just because everyone was getting a little bit trashy. So they had threatened it, threatened it, and then sure enough, the year that I was doing my dip, they're like, they announced that it would be non-alcoholic and there was uproar. Everyone was, <laughs> when we were sitting in the room, because they told the students first and then we had to go back and tell our families and, and whatnot, and they put um, uh, an announcement out and newsletter and all of that kind of stuff. But when, I remember when they were telling us and everyone's going, oh, you're kidding, rah, rah, rah. And they're like, excuse me? You're all underage anyway. It shouldn't <laughs> impact you. And they're like, oh, but our parents. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we went back and, and told family and stuff. My brother was at uni and he was like, he had his dead ball and he was looking forward to coming back and catching up with mates. He's just like, you're kidding me. It's, n- it's no alcohol. I said, yeah, because of people like you who got so drunk in your years. Now we have to suffer for it. <laughs> uh, so he's like, he's like, well, you better tell Aunty Linda. She's going to be devastated. <laughs> so uh, lots of family brought hip flasks and people just got... <laughs> so this is not celebrating young women doing their dab. This is people getting shit-faced yeah. at Melrose receptions. And you bring your... So it's like it's a big... Like you bring your 
Do you bring extended yeah. family? I had my nan just... there. I had my auntie. So I had a table. I think I had two tables. So I had, um, yeah, family and then some friends. I had a couple of friends from other schools that came down. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, and my brother, yeah, he had a couple of schoolmates as well because um, he went to school there and, yeah, everyone was catching up. So um, they – and you know what? The tickets, uh, the tickets, instead of being, say, $50, they were $40. I thought – and I was like, God, with the amount of alcohol that they drink, I thought that would have been at least $30 on top of the regular yeah, ticket. Yeah. Uh, pub squash are they getting? Yes. Well, plenty to mix with their vodka, apparently. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I – this is – I didn't do my debt, but I was at the formal and I emceed it or whatever, and I had a hip flask. Did you? But because I was emceeing, I just – was like out and out with it. Oh, like drinking on stage? Well, like, yeah, I poured it like as a gag or whatever. I was like, they're not going to do anything because it's too, it'll, it's, I don't know, it's like the, the lie is too big or the, the, the act is too grand. They're like, oh, surely it's not alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So I got away with it only because I just completely owned it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's the secret. But also I think getting into probably the races back in the day, I used a hip flask. Do you, st- oh, do yeah. you still own a hip flask? No, I don't. I think I got one for my like 21st birthday or something like that, but I don't think I've ever I've owned it. I've never had one. My, bro- my, my brother got one. It was big with his mates. They all gave each other, yeah, like mm. engraved ones or whatever. Right. Yeah, team is it curved for a reason? Is it curved so is that it, it, it fit against fits on your hip? Fits is that what it your is? body? Oh, yes. The, yeah. the hip, of course. Mm. <laughs> Where on your body with my hip flask? My bucks hips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it sits right on your, on your hand. I didn't know that they were could get as rowdy as you've described. Yeah, I mean, that was that was back as March for you. Another, another story from uh, high school when I was in uh, year 10, so same year, probably because I made this non-alcoholic, girls went crazy in, in this experience. Anyway, um, so we had a girls' footy team and every year we made state finals. It was great. We were the most successful sporting team in the school. And this one year we made state finals again, so we were playing against a team in Geelong. Um, but the, the round before we were playing... Um, in Essendon area somewhere. Anyway, in the change rooms after the game, we won. So we were going to the state semifinals again. Uh, one of the girls noticed that there was a door open that went into the bar. Um. And so I, I didn't know any of this until I got onto the bus. Uh, so one went in and they saw that there was alcohol there. So they have told another person. So there's been a bunch of them. So a dozen of them grabbed bottles, cans, whatever. Took them onto the bus. Mm. Uh, and it was about, I don't know, 45-minute drive home. And by the time we got to Bacchus Marsh, wow. half the team was so drunk. Uh, so but they... then you're just home, right? And then do you get it off the bus and, like, your mum picks you up? I mean... Yeah, although, I mean, a lot of them just live local. so they And they were 15 or 16, so they just either walked home or just went to the park and just had a great time. Well, the, yeah, I was more just thinking, what do you do then? You're just like, oh, drive yeah. your arm home. Bye, guys. Thanks. Yeah, well, it was the end of school, but, but that's yeah. it. Yeah, I know. It's just this, oh, let's have some alcohol at lunchtime and then go to class. It's like, <laughs> weird. Anyway, so, like, oh, we're sitting on the bus. I was like... What is going on around me? Um, and I think a couple of the girls, did, I was captain of the team, and a couple of the girls didn't tell me. They're like, oh, we don't want you to tell us not to do it. I'm just like, I'm all for fun, but as long as you don't get caught and you guys are absolutely going to get caught, can you keep your voice down or hide your bottle or something? <laughs> uh, and, of course, they got caught. Uh, so then half the team got suspended. Wow. And didn't play in the semifinals. So we were the shittest 
team coming into the state semifinals and Geelong were laughing at us. Like they were kicking the ball all around us. We had to get all these fill-ins. It it was horrible. I don't know how. And they were just like, how did you guys make the semifinals? I'm like, well, half our team have been suspended because they were drunk, okay? We were really good before that. And we're really cool because they were drunk. It was cool. (laughs) That is such a massive consequence of a 45-minute bus ride. Yeah, oh. I know. And that's the, I was yeah, I was so angry because we we never made we made a grand final once, uh, but every other year we always got but we always got beaten by that Geelong region in the semi-finals, <laughs> yeah. and not only did we get beaten, we got absolutely smashed. So I was so angry. Yeah, I mm. bet. Oh, I mean, I went to dinner with a real piece of work who was uh, <laughs> the partner of a friend of mine, and then we left this restaurant, and he goes, "Look what I've got." And uh, he pulls out a bottle that he'd stolen. From the restaurant? Yeah. Uh, oh. th- there would have been a bar at the restaurant and the, the bar, mm. this bar was unattended. And I'm like, oh, you're just appalling. And anyway, he opens the lid and downs it and then spits it out. It was food diet. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best karma. Yeah. <laughs> Sucked oh. in, you turd. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh my god, food died. But was it? Did it? Was it a little one of those little ones? No, it was a big giant, like you know, a sambuco or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Looks oh like it. Oh my god! But it was a make-believe bar. Oh. To, to yeah, fool the make-believe drunks. Or, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, cousins of mine were having a wedding, and it was non-alcoholic. They had told a couple of family members and they were like, what? Uh, and the couple that were getting married were religious and they didn't drink. And so they didn't think it was that big a thing. They're just like, oh, well, we don't we don't drink. So, we've, I mean, we're catering everything else and didn't think it was a big deal. So they called um, my cousin. She called my brother who was working in events at the time and just said, can I just get your opinion on something? We've got our wedding. It's a week away and mm. it's not a, there's no alcohol because we don't drink, but a few family members are starting to kick up a bit of a fuss. We just wanted to know what your thoughts with events and everything. And Russ is just like, and he didn't, he wasn't drinking at the time. Like he doesn't drink. Um, And he said, you absolutely have to Mm. provide alcohol. Even if you don't drink, um, he goes, and it doesn't have to be all night, but even just for even a certain amount of time or if it's subsidized or something, he said for events, he goes, unfortunately, if you don't, that's what people are going to remember from your wedding and it's going to take away from your thing. He's He's like, it sucks. And I'm and I'm sorry, but if you want my advice, I recommend that you put some alcohol on. Uh, so they did, and then they yeah they put alcohol on, and yeah everyone had a really good time. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? How much it can just it's impact the, other people's and and you know and and they don't drink themselves. I, I completely understand. I can understand the thinking, but also yeah. that that was that is good advice. Oh, definitely, people are obsessed with it. Like yeah. that's how we social. That's how we just, you know. For better or worse, that's how a lot of people socialise. Yeah. But, yeah, if you go to a wedding and it's not an option, like, you know, when you have an event, when you have a party or a wedding or anything, mm. you put food on the menu that you might not eat. Yeah, because you... So it's a similar kind of thing, I guess. But the yeah. cost would be annoying. If people go to a wedding wanting to pick up and going, are you saying after a lie on my own wits <laughs> yes. and the full judgement of everybody else? <laughs> no, thank you. Triple R. Teaching us how to talk proper on breakfasts, we're joined for our professional development by Professor of Linguistics <laughs> at Monash University and author of titles including Blooming English and Weeds in the Garden of Words. It's Kate Burridge. Good morning, Kate. Good morning. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for being here. Um, what word-wise can you bring to our attention today? 
Well, uh, something that has interested me for a long time, and it's something that gets a lot of bad press. People don't like these things called discourse markers. Like, like, yeah, no, I mean, I think, kind of, sort of, a bit, well, anyway. You know, there are hundreds of these things, Mm -hmm. uh, often described as speech junk by Mm -hmm. the general public, the sort of things that we plop into our language when we've got nothing better to say. And, of course, it's always in other people's speech that this happens. Never, you're never in your own. No, that's right, (laughs) exactly, exactly. So are they a proxy for the word um sometimes? It's interesting because that's how they're often interpreted, but they're mind-bogglingly complex little things. I mean, I could give you an example. I See, I slipped one in then, I mean... Um, that's the problem. I did an album. You know, when you start talking about these things, uh, you start to home in on your own linguistic routines, mm. and you know, we're all going to be completely tongue-tied in about three minutes, <laughs> yeah. I predict. Uh, but yeah, no is a good one because that's one I've done a bit of work on with a colleague, Margaret Flory. Uh, this appeared sort of in the early two thousands in the Speech of Australians. Of course, everyone started to complain about it, and, mm. and actually, it was a complaint that alerted me to this. I'm always interested in what people don't like about language, uh, but it's. It's got, well, it starts off, there's obviously agreement and disagreement. So you might go into shop and say, I don't know, I want ricotta. And they say, the person there says, well, you know, we've got cottage cheese. And you say, yeah, no, I'm actually after ricotta. Mm. So to say no would be blunt, yes, kind of softens it down. Mm -hmm. But then it starts to move off and that's, that's its beginning point. And then it gets more and more abstract, more and more personal. So then it started to be an emphatic, yes, you have a good time? Yeah, no, I had a real ball that year, no. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's the one where uh, we might be chatting about yeah, no, and then we get derailed and go off on a tangent, and then you might come back to the original topic with a yeah, no, because the yeah kind of, you know, you agree with whatever they've been saying, but you want to get the topic back on track. Mm. So that's a really common use of yeah, no. But then the final one, and that's one a lot of people notice now, particularly in sporting, is when um, sports people who've done well uh, are complimented you did really well today. Yeah, no, it was, you know, the conditions were great and the team played really well. Because that's a real routine in Australian English. We don't want to stand out and sky. Downplay. Exactly. Okay. And that's what a lot of these little markers are. They downplay. So you're trying to be yeah. polite as well? Polite. Mm. Yeah, because you want to acknowledge the compliment. You, otherwise, you look a bit ungracious. But mm. you don't want to stand out and skite. Um, although you can on the sporting field usually, can't <laughs> yeah. you, in Australia? That's the one. Now that you say that, I'm just thinking of sporting interviews. So many athletes start with that Always. all the time, mm. don't mm. they? Well, it can be a kind of filler too. And I'm sure as broadcasters, you have your own linguistic routines, a bit of breathing space, you know, gives you time to think. We've all got them. And I think the unkindest thing of all is when people draw attention to your your uses of these things, because we all have them. I mean, teenagers might use more likes, but it was the baby boomers that started the year no. So we've, we've um. got them. There's something is called loose talk, which is this... Kind of imprecise, like I did then, kind of. This imprecise way we have of talking, which is friendlier, reduces kind of distance. You sound less authoritative. Obviously, there are times when you want to sound authoritative. Mm. Um, and it, it's not a new phenomenon? It goes way oh, back? Oh, no. Now, they're hard to sort of track in time because people don't tend to write them down. That's the thing. They're part of, you know, fast and furious speech and particularly conversations. The kind of verbal cuddling that we do, particularly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's friendly. So what's an example of maybe a bygone discourse marker? Oh, there there are lots. Well, well is quite an old one. Um, and there are the harks and the, that kind of thing. It's really we don't know a lot about the ones in the past. But I think what's interesting about the current ones is that they, well, like like, like started its life in the body, in a word meaning body, 
in we're talking about a thousand years ago. So it's the same word as you know the lich gate at a cemetery. Yeah. When you stand with the body to before you bury the body, that's oh. lich. That's the same word as like. So God like was God lich having the body of God, and then that it, it just went down some extraordinary paths. Mm. It's actually the same as the ly ending on godly. But teenage like is, and I'm like, it's so excellent, or like, you know, I'm like, and then you shrug, or, and the like emphatic like, it's, you know, there are lots mm. of different likes as well. That that it's gone through a really interesting twists and turns over centuries. That mm. word. Do you know if these kind of discourse markers are unique to English? No, all all languages have them. Mm. And the sad thing, I suppose, is well, I think it's changing now. But whether they're not taught, you know, whether or not they're taught in in language classes, I'd hope so now because they are such an important part of our conversations. That, but they are really hard to pinpoint. The meaning, and it's very hard to get translation equivalents of these words too across. They're, they're quite different. Mm. How can we train ourselves out of them? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're quite right. I mean, but, well, part of the problem is when people stop being cooperative listeners. You know, you're supposed to let these things flow over you, but if you notice that the person you're talking to uses your least favourite discourse marker, like a lot of the time, then of course you home in on that, mm. and that becomes the most salient part of the conversation. And you stop being a cooperative listener. You just sort of focus in on that, and you start counting them. I've had people count my discourse markers. You know, oh, yeah, which I've is had really those. unkind. You know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so you said like 12 times. Well, what else did I say, though? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, so I mean, you can train yourself out of them. And it's a bit like the chefs, I suppose, the great chefs that tell you, you know, flavour repeated too often is, gets a bit tedious. Mm. Uh, if you do overuse them, then you should probably train yourself out. Um, what about a bit? Is a bit kind of funny? Like, <laughs> I'm the most, I'm the greatest a bit user, and I've been analysing actually my emails back, you know, quite a long time, and on the number of times I've said a bit, uh, it's it's very much a part of the Australian English again. This downplaying, you know, I'm a bit under the weather. I'm, I've even, we, a colleague of mine, we've encountered things like oh, I had a bit of a heart attack. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had a bit of an accident, and that involved, you know, a, a, a crash landing of a plane with with a bit of a broken propeller. You know, yeah. that, that a bit was all the way through um, and that's part of that loose talk too that sort of cuddly well I did it then with sorta why did I put sorta in there I don't know I'm not sure that went to me over the weekend a friend said oh I've just been a bit unwell they've been in hospital all week yeah, <laughs> exactly well, I don't know if that's a bit <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> what do you say when you've got a cold <laughs> yeah. mm. I mean like really clangs I mm. yeah. can't bear it mm. to too much yes yeah, um and it's probably because it's it's more a feature of younger people's speech, teen speak, probably. But that's usually because teenagers are much more into who said what to whom and what we we're thinking and feeling at the time, and that that encourages the use of like. Mm. But um, you started then with I mean, which is a way <laughs> of getting into something, um, you know, sort of to situate. With, yeah, no, you can do that too. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. It's really they're, they're fascinating. That's right. They can be overdone. What are some other things that Daniel does? <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Uh, so let's say you removed all discourse markers from your language. Would you sound aggressive and dogmatic? Blunt, yes. Right. And it's interesting. Do you remember when, well, I think one of the apps um, 
for emails, it wanted, you know, helped you to try to get rid of these, what are hedging phrases particularly, when I'm a hopeless hedger, you know, with just <laughs> and I mean and, you know, I was just emailing you, you put it in the past, you know, even though you're doing it now because past is also polite. Um, yeah, yeah, but, you know, who says that's the best way to do it, to come across blunter in your emails or in your speech? Mm. Because I think these discourse markers there are, you know, they're there for a reason. And it is something you come across, I think, with people when English is their second language. I have German in-laws. Mm-hmm. I know their English is perfect. There is, and it's that thing where they don't, if they don't use the discourse markers, mm-hmm. they do come across as blunt or rude. Yes. And you think, oh, what, why are you saying exactly what you mean? Why do, are you adding it? Do they use German discourse markers? Because I think... Not with me. Not with you. Oh, but <laughs> sometimes these are, these are automatic speech things too. Mm. So sometimes you notice that bilinguals will sort of pair down to one set of discourse, and it's usually, you know, the one, well, whichever the dominant, I suppose English is dominant for them now, yeah. but it can be, you know, you can keep the... For these sorts of markers from your first language. What was going on in the early 2000s for Yerna to kick off? Uh, it's, it's interesting. Why did it kick off? Uh, it's one of these puzzles, you know, why something happens in a language at a certain time and not at another time. And it, it just stepped up and... But see, it's, it's a slow... Pro- it's a bit like a bit. I mean, a bit has been in the language for a thousand years. It's in Old English and it meant a bite. Mm. So bit mm. is the same word as bite. So that's what happens with these words over time. It's a bit like you started with breakfast. I mean, it was a breakfast, but then it gets sh- the words get shorter and shorter with time because we start saying them and you're in, you know, they get sh- we, we get better at it, we take shortcuts, we're lazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's the same with bite becoming bit and then it, then it becomes this very abstract, little personal kind of expressive marker. And you mentioned hark earlier. Mm. What? How would that be used in a sentence? Oh, well, it usually starts something, but it, it's it's we really have no idea of of discourse markers earlier, the real use of these things. Yeah, because you know we've only had access to spoken language, really natural spoken language. Mm. Quite did it recently. mean what did it mean? Did it oh, mean it was a way of attracting or? attention. Yes, and these things can do that, and that's what light can do at the beginning of a you know, like I met this guy. You know that that can sort of get everyone's attention. You see Harkin Shakespeare, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Mm. Okay. I'm well, if he used it. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. We might bring that one back. You've got to really, yeah. if you're going to use Hark in a sentence, you really got to... Uh, you got to back it up. It's got to back it up. Yeah. It's something Meaty good. sort of intel. <laughs> yes. mm. You can't say, Hark, yeah, nah. Yeah. Be, oh, uh, and, and do you ever... Obviously, you've made us self-conscious. Do you walk around self-conscious <laughs> or you've just... It's been too long now and... Oh, no. <laughs> no, You've rendered me tongue-tied. Yeah. I, I love listening to... I mean, I find it all interesting. I mean, that's not just... Of course, you know, linguists, when you scratch the surface, they have things that get up their noses, but, uh, uh, yeah. One day I'd like to ask you about vocal fry. And oh, yes. It's Australian adaptation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, if you wouldn't mind coming of back. Of course. <laughs> <I'm trying laughs> Beautiful. Uh, Kate Burridge, linguist at Monash University. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Triple R. Triple R. I bought some flowers and a bottle of wine for a, a close friend of mine. Her mum just passed away uh, recently. And I went to drop it at her house yesterday. And she wasn't home. Now, she lives in a apartment complex. And not like mine. It's so not a building where you have a foyer to, you have to get in. It's kind of more like there was a fence and then there's townhouses on the inside. Mm-hmm. So there are their own separate houses and everything. Um, anyway, she, she wasn't home. Uh, I was there uh, with, with Abby and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to leave it out here because it's so many people walk past. People could just grab it. 
<sighs> I'll buzz someone else and hopefully someone else will let me in and then they can see me that I've got flowers and a bottle of wine and they'll let me in. Uh, anyway, I buzzed a couple other places and I don't know if they saw me, but they didn't let me in. So I was like, okay, all right, can you hold this? And she's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to have to climb the fence. She said, really? I said, well, what else are we going to do? She's like, we can come back again later. <laughs> I don't have the time for that. So I said, no, no, I'll just be a minute. This will take one minute. She said, do you want me to climb the fence? I said, you think I can't do it? <laughs> she said, I'm not saying that. I'm just giving you an out if you if you don't have to do this. I said, I'm fine. Anyway, I gave her the, the wine and the um, the flowers and climbed up. The climbing up actually wasn't a bad thing. It's just a jumping down on the other side that is oh. the issue because uh, it didn't have the rails that it does on the outside. Anyway, jumped over, unscathed, got in and then just put the things on her doorstep uh, and then came out. So thankfully it was all okay. Oh, good job. Thank you. Um, it did uh, – it's been a long time since I, I was actually very – thrilled with myself that I did it so easily. I think Abby was very surprised. I was excited with myself because I don't think I've climbed anything like that uh, for a very long time. The last time that I recall that I have climbed a fence was when I was a child. So when we were younger, we used to go to our um, cousin's place. Now when I say cousins, it's always just people part of the community, uh, the Kiribati community. They're probably not related or fifth cousins, Mm. but they're our cousins. So we used to go to their place in Mombok uh, and there were Four boys and three girls. It was a very big family uh, and they were well known at school and everything. Kind of, I'm just trying to think of a reference that might make it, you know, this is a terrible one, but the River Boys on Home and Away, oh my God. So everyone's kind of scared of them. You, you don't question What's them. The, They're the bad boys. Okay. Like you know the bra, I, mean? I think the River Boys were based on the Bra Boys who were well, the legitimate, we, like, gang. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, well, maybe not that bad. No, no, um, you've said it. No, I've absolutely said it. Uh, so we'd go up there and we always had fun. But sometimes it was scary, some of the things. Anyway, <laughs> we were we were up there this one time and so I was with my older brother. I was about 10, my older brother was 13 and then uh, all the others were aged between 10 and 16. And they're like, all right, we're going to go to the pool. And my mum said, oh, um, do you guys need money? Is it any money? How much is it going to cost for all of it? My cousin goes, nah, it's free. She's like, oh, that's good. And they're like, yeah, yeah, all good. Anyway, so we go to the pool mm-hmm. and it was $3.00. Okay, to get in. I said, it's $3. We haven't got any money. And they're like, ah, don't worry about it. And then, of course, I was just absolutely crapping myself. Mm. I'm like, what do you mean don't worry about it? And they were just laughing and then went around to the back of the pool and jumped the fence <gasps> to get into the pool. How many of you? There were four, six of us. Wow, okay. Yes. Had to be the last one. What's, what was that? I had to be the, the yeah. last one climbing. Yeah. I was absolutely the last one climbing. So my cousins just climbed like monkeys straight over and then just jumped down, threw the bags over. They're like, come on. And I remember just looking at my brother going, don't leave me. He's like, we've got to do it. Oh, my God, no. Anyway, he climbed over. Families are looking like, who are these to all know? It's the shipsies. Don't uh, don't question them. Uh, so then that was the last name. That wasn't a, any derogatory of any sort. <laughs> Uh, anyway, and then, yeah, I climbed over this fence, jumped down. Uh, I was nervous for the first little bit, but then it was fine. Um, but that was probably the last time I you had... You like a hero. When I got over, I did, mm. yeah. But it was terrifying on the... Because, like, in Mombok, there's lots of forests and everything, and it literally, it felt like this was in the middle of a forest. Mm. So they were on the shiny side with the pool and sun, and I was in the shadows <laughs> in this 
forest. They're like, if you don't come over, you're going to be stuck on the yeah. on the forest side. I remember being trapped in a yacht club or something I, and I had to escape. What? <laughs> so you couldn't get out. Like you were asleep under the table when they called last week. Yeah, I, no, it was at Christmas Day. I was invited. It was all okay, but for some reason, the only way to get out was to jump the fence. Oh, no. And it was like at the end of Christmas. Oh, so what do you mean? You've been, this is very Kevin, whatever his name is, from Home Alone. Yeah. You've been yeah. left there by yourself on Christmas at, well, at a yeah, yacht club. I, and, and so I scaled it, and of course, people ahead of me get over easily. And I, I was just perched with sharp barbs <laughs> or whatever. Oh, like no. Like sitting on the fence for like. I, it felt like 15 minutes because oh. I'm like, I didn't know which way to go. Like, if you're going to fall, you may as well fall towards the exit. You think so, yes. So yeah. then you're out. Yeah, yep. then you're out. But it felt like I would cause more uh, arterial damage oh. <laughs> going that way than falling back. Anyway, it was it's like uh, so amusing to everybody. <laughs> Like, people are laughing, like, townsfolk are coming. And townsfolk. <laughs> Did anyone try and help you? No. I mean, there was, because I called for a lift, but there, I was not helpable. Was it, there was that sort of fence. Were you at the top asking for help, like, with one leg over each side? <laughs> yeah, it was sort Brilliant. of like that. Or, or even perched in a way where, uh, uh, like, a... I don't know, like a ninja? Oh, yes, yes, that's exactly how <laughs> I like describe it. like a very uh, overly refreshed, <laughs> stuck ninja. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know how I got out of it. But it's it's also, say, prison fences. I've noticed yes. that there's a lot of curves. So it's hard, it's hard to grip. Yeah, mm, and I find uh, that really frustrating. Not that I'm when incarcerated. When you try to get into a prison. Yeah, but mm. if I was... If I was Incarcerated, and I was thinking because we know the chap who got out of the prison the other day. Oh, through the toilet. Through the toilet. And then, but there's a, yeah, there were people who got out of the prison recently who escaped and found a way to get out, then up onto the roof, and then they just walked out in plain sight or something because it was so easy once he got through that first right, hurdle. Right. Yeah. Mm. Whereas I find the curved wall to be so tantalisingly achievable. Because it won't hurt. Yeah, but you know that you can't do it. <laughs> I would rather there were just spikes and shards so that... It, you it wouldn't I mean? tempt you. Yeah, it wouldn't tempt me. But it's <laughs> there's so something comforting about the big curves. Yeah, because then, then you like, if I get stuck, I can just like <laughs> sprawl out over it. This is yeah, nice. Yeah, it's like soft. a cute cat video or something. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, when I lived in Blackwood, we had um, a fence put up after we'd been living there for a little while um but we had a fence put up and it had barbed wire on the top two layers kind of thing so it was just a, a metal fence or whatever it is up until then and and there were cows that were on the other side as well and when we were playing sports sometimes the ball would go over the fence it's like oh, it wasn't just a fence that you could jump over because you had that barbed wire so you'd have to go in between the fence and the barbed wire mm. the amount of times that I got my hair stuck oh, the yes. oh no God, it was yeah. so annoying. Everything else was fine. Nowadays, geez, I wouldn't get one left yeah. boob over that thing. But anyway. <laughs> I've used underutilised tennis courts with a hole in the wall that I created. Oh, that you created. Well, no, I maybe just exacerbated existing quite damage. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you back from that quite quickly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, we used to get into our local tennis court from a hole in the climbing under, like a wire fence climbing under it. But, but yeah, I reckon that lasted until I was maybe 12 max and then I was too big for it. But that was a thrill. Yeah, get into tennis courts. And, you know. I think yeah. I think thirteen, fourteen is a good cut off age. I know people talk about for being a scallywag. Yeah, for, well, for, for for scooching through a gap in a tennis court wall. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, what a specific rule to have. Yeah. But I sure. mean, we've got voting age and driving. <laughs> and if you're yeah, getting through the tennis court wall, yeah. 13. 13's the cutoff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anything older looks but a you're, little dodgy. But it, it facilitated a love of tennis for you, this life of crime. Absolutely, yeah. And I encourage everyone to pursue a life of crime <laughs> in, the, in the pursuit of elite sport. Triple R. Hundreds of thousands of homeless people in Australia are hidden and go unrecognised as homeless, with the majority of them women and women over 50, now the fastest growing demographic of homeless in the developed world. Now, Undercover, narrated by Margot Robbie, is the new documentary that follows 10 of these women, as well as those working to keep older women from becoming homeless. It's the work of writer, director and producer Sue Thompson. And to tell us about Undercover, which premieres at MIFF this Saturday, the filmmaker joins us now. Sue, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. This is uh, quite an alarming issue, isn't it? When did it become uh, inescapable for you to tackle this as a, as a source of documentary? Uh, I think... Around the end of 2018, when I was finishing my last documentary, I started, you know, as you do, considering what you're going to do next. And I saw a program on Insight about a woman who was maybe, you know, just over 60, living in her car, and she'd spent her entire life as a librarian and raised kids and seemed to have a really ordinary life. And there I am sitting as a woman over 50, thinking about my life, and I've worked in the arts since I was, you know, 17, 18 and had no super and, you know, didn't really have a lot of money, living hand to mouth, paying bills late, all that stuff. And I started to think, well, if it wasn't for my relationship, if that broke down, because that's the only way I can manage to sort of borrow, beg, steal to pay bills, I too could end up living in my car. And I started just thinking a lot about the gender pay gap, um, what is about older women, what have we been faced with, how does it lead to this? And so I think because I spend a lot of time on my films, this one, because of COVID as well, but this one's been four years, I thought I need to love them, I need to feel passionate, I need to feel committed and that it resonates with me personally. And so I decided that was going to be my next issue to deal with. Yeah. And why are women undercover maybe more than the male population of homeless? I think women, there's a certain amount of shame attached to, you know, becoming sort of homeless or having terrible housing crisis or not being able to pay your bills. Um, I think traditionally we've worked in those caring roles of looking after people working part-time, all those things that women, dare I say, get overlooked and are perhaps invisible, particularly the older ones. So when a woman is faced with the possibility that she can't pay her rent or her mortgage, um, she doesn't necessarily know who to turn to, particularly older women, where to go, what do I say, so they keep it to themselves a lot. They don't. Women will do anything than sleep on the street. They're so fearful of spending a night on a park bench that they will stay in their car, they will visit friends, stay with children, go to a holiday to a caravan park, anything to avoid sleeping in the street. So I think that's just a, from what I've found in the film, it seems to be something that women are, you know, maybe a bit ashamed of. Mm. So they'll do anything to avoid it. Something that was almost universal amongst the women in this film was, an, well, yeah, it was an element of shock and disbelief. Like, how could this happen to me? Were you were you shocked by that when you started meeting these subjects that not all of them come from 
the stereotypical background people might think of for a homeless person. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of women that didn't end up in the film that said it too. That was a very common thread. I think you're right. It's, you know, you one woman said something in the film, you don't grow up as a young person thinking, oh, I'm going to be homeless <laughs> when I'm, you know, hit 50. It's just not part of our life's plan. Mm. So... Yeah, I think I think everyone, even people who are living on, you know, who live in poverty, don't want to be homeless and don't think it's going to happen to them. Mm. Mm. What a, how do women, if they don't have cars uh, and they find themselves in a situation where they might become homeless, how do they find out about women's shelters or other accommodation options? That's something that I kept asking them mm. from the beginning of this film. What really concerned me is there's no sort of national number that you call and I used to say to them what did you do how do you find these people and they said it was always by chance which is quite scary it was just you know they a friend would say oh I've heard about this organization called housing for the aged action group or women's housing limited or YWCA you could perhaps give them a call but they they don't know and it is really hard and that's when I think things become dire, maybe when you're talking to your GPs, um, you hope you, you rely on friends and that's why a film like Undercover, the whole reason I've made a film like this is to sort of start these conversations and, you know, we have to work as a community. These are people in our lives. These are women that have, you know, raised children, supported our society and now we're just sort of abandoning them. So. Um, yeah, I always wanted a national number, but we also live in a world now that you ring a number and you'll be on hold for <laughs> five hours. So that's not the right answer, is it? But um, I think the main thing older women find eventually is you can ring those big organisations like Sacred Heart Mission or Salvation Army, St Vincent de Paul, and then they will filter you down to an appropriate social housing organisation. But, you know, it can take years. But, yes, there are short-term solutions if you get, you know, the right number to call, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. What about the frustration of some of the advocates which comes through in the documentary as well? And the, I mean, I'm thinking of office occupancy right now uh, and all the space that's really available. I might, you might remember there's a man, that, the one and only man that gets in the film. He started an organisation called Housing all Australians. So his focus is not just women, but his big thing as an ex-property developer is exactly what you're talking about. And, and I wasn't aware of that, that all through the city, even before COVID, there are hundreds of really large buildings sitting empty, owned by developers, and often they are in the planning process of being developed into something. And his thing is getting a, a, a long-term lease, like for a dollar a year, they fit it out with you know cheap discarded furniture and set it up beautifully and then let people and women often come and stay in them. But so the frustration is endless with this film. I started out so naively thinking, I'm gonna make a film and I'm gonna change it. And by the end of the film, there will be no homelessness for women <laughs> over 50. It is actually getting worse as time goes on. And we're an aging population there are, as we know, the statistics are going up and governments keep, you know, having um, inquiries, talking about changing policy, but it's not happening fast enough. I mean, even the Andrews government has that $5.3 billion 
push to build houses, it's going to be about 10% of what we actually need in Victoria alone. We're one of the worst states for homelessness, which is another thing that I found during the film. So frustrations are everywhere. And, you know, I'm at a loss. I, I just like, we have to just keep talking about it. And that's what a film like Undercover is hopefully doing. And... I, you, we might be able to, uh, through our impact campaign, get the film into parliaments all around. That's our plan in, 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 all around Australia and try and change policy. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, some of the attitudes of the subjects in the film? Did anything strike you or was there a thread? I'm thinking of Mary in particular, who, uh, if she wrote a self-help book, I would buy. <laughs> I think, well, we know the classic domestic violence um, is, a, is a, a major reason that women become homeless. They don't talk about that a lot. In, the women in my film, they keep it very close to themselves. I, and I didn't push it, but you, you can feel underlying that there's, a, you know, it, it is one of the reasons that some of the women in that film become homeless. Um, the thread meaning what the, of their the, attitudes and approaches to life and um, what you, what struck you as a filmmaker meeting these people well that every single one of them impressed me with their resilience their sort of quiet humor their determination to not be knocked down i mean mary's extraordinary the fact that she says oh you know i'm not one to sit around and cry and i'm you know i'm not going to complain i mean there are people worse off than me Mm. really mary you know name some of them because (laughs) you are doing it she was so isolated when i met her um yeah so a thread through the I'm just impressed with women I'm continually impressed with young women old women yeah <laughs> no offense to you no, no, of course. <laughs> uh, tell us where we can see this and you you've mentioned that you have maybe policy ambitions f- for the film but first up where where can we go see it okay so it's on at Acme on Saturday at one o'clock um that's our first screening and you know we've got Fiona Patton coming to that and Claire G mm-hmm. Coleman we're doing a Q&A after the first one and and you know um, Margaret has come down from Brisbane Sarah Jane has coming up from Byron Bay you know that's, that's mm. going to be great um then the next screening is Wednesday at 11 a.m at Acme and again I've got um Linda who's coming to that Q&A and hopefully someone else and then Friday the 19th at the Kino at 6.30, I think, and there'll be a Q&A after that one as well. Beautiful. Selling fast, those Melbourne shows as well. Yeah, it is, which is great. Absolutely. Okay, well, the new documentary film Undercover screens at MIF at those dates that Sue's just elucidated. Uh, head to miff.com.au for all the information that comes highly recommended. Congratulations on the film. And uh, look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>